Just a heads up, today's episode doesn't get into anything graphic, but should be said that we do discuss some mature themes. That's the 1300s. You lied to me, Wikipedia. The book isn't necessarily better. Presented by the Community Library Network here in North Idaho. I'm your host, Roxanne, along with my other host, Michaela. And we have a special guest here today, a very special guest, my older sister, Lindsay. Hello, I'm happy to be here. We're happy you're here too. <laughs> I miss you. Oh. Oh. <laughs> today we are talking about a little story you might have heard of called Game of Thrones. And we're going to start off, before we get into the depths of it, we're going to start off with a bio of the author. Go ahead, Michaela. Sure. Game of Thrones, or for you super nerds out there, A Song of Ice and Fire, was written by George R.R. Martin. He was born in 1948. He's 72 years old this year, folks. Give him a hand. He, uh... Okay. What does George R.R. Martin stand for? I know the George Martin. It's... George Raymond Martin, and then at his confirmation, he took another R name, and I can't remember what it is. I think Richard. So I think it's... Or like Rickard? No. Or Rob with two Bs? No. <laughs> None of those things. Just Richard, plain and simple. And also, he took that as a pen name because there's a George Martin that was a producer for the Beatles he didn't want to get mixed up with. But there's a famous athlete, I think, that played for the... I want to say the Buffalo Bills. That is also another George Martin, so <laughs> he's just trying to stand out. Too many George Martins. Stop naming your kids that, folks. He started out always wanting to write, wrote a lot of stories as a child, including a series about his pet turtles who often died in their tank. He made up stories about them killing each other off <laughs> in very sinister plots. Uh, so, you know, a little bit of a forerunner of Game of Thrones. Is that why Game of Thrones is so slow moving sometimes? I disagree. For shame, <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> Full disclosure, Lindsay and Michaela are the fans here. I am the interloper uh-huh. with Lindsay coming. It was a good excuse to do Game of Thrones because I would never willingly choose this. Do you know what? George Martin would not be mad at you for not liking his books. He says there's a book for everyone and some people will just never ever be into fantasy. It doesn't matter if it's good fantasy or bad fantasy. And his father was a person like that who he could never get into fantasy, but he would love cowboy stories because cowboys existed. And so he can put himself in the story, but you throw in any type of magic or anything that's not real, he can't put himself in the story. So I don't think George Martin would, would mind that you don't like his, his books, Roxanne. I really appreciate that. <laughs> that's exactly why I don't like Game of Thrones, because I, I like mm. historical mm-hmm. fiction, but then there's dragons and zombies and I'm... Mm. Not for me. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I dislike Game of Thrones. It's just not for me. Which is so interesting because he so specifically tried to make Game of Thrones like a historical novel that it kind of surprises me that you don't like A Song of Ice and Fire. But honestly. Because there's dragons and stuff. Okay. (laughs) We'll we'll talk about this as we go on. He actually toned down the dragons. He wants the magic to be like secondary to all of the political Mm -hmm. intrigue and the history that's going on. He actually is very against, like, magic being the deus ex machina mm. in all of the fantasy that's happening. Okay. 
So I anyway, so that just kind of surprises me. He always said his uh, his favorite type of fantasies are the best where there's a a smattering of magical elements and it, it makes the story more realistic. Like you can't throw in too many magical creatures and right, yeah. And I think that's what he does, like a science fiction where the technology actually could be produced. He writes a lot of science fiction short stories, but I actually haven't read his science fiction, so I couldn't hmm. say. But I mean in general, like a science fiction story that's more realistic rather than right. seemingly improbable. Yeah. So Isaac Asimov. Okay. Going back to him just for a little bit. He has a BS and an MS in journalism from Northwestern University. He was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War, so instead he did uh, some service work as a VISTA volunteer. He later taught university for a couple of years in the 70s, but he quit to become a full-time writer. Writing wasn't going that well, so he also worked as a tournament director for the Continental Chess Association. He's got a very brilliant mind for chess. It checks out. And eventually, George R.R. Martin started working in TV, because that was where the money was. He is a pretty good screenwriter, did a lot of screenwriting, including for the Twilight Zone. Really? Yeah. Oh. Which I thought you would like. I do like that. Yeah. Now, he has... Restored and owns the John Cocteau Cinema and Coffee House, and also opened a Beastly Books bookstore in 2019. Where are these? He's in New Mexico. New Mexico. In the, the movie theaters <laughs> in New Mexico, too. Good to know. And in his lifetime, George R.R. R. Martin has been nominated for like a zillion Hugo Nebula Locus Awards, which are all for, you know, fantasy, and also a lot of Emmys. And he's won Locus Awards for three of the Ice and Fire books. Sorry, four of them. The first three and the fifth one. Because the fourth one is trash, don't read it. And um, he's won Emmys for four seasons of Game of Thrones. As consultant or? As a co-producer, but he oh. also sometimes, he's like a consultant kind of behind the scenes and he writes some, but not a lot. Is he married? Has kids? He's married. I know that much. I don't know if he has kids. He and his wife, I know, are very active in like Comic-Cons. They do a ton of Comic-Cons. And it sounds like he's pretty beloved, right? He hasn't been mutued or anything. Like <laughs> uh, no, guy. He hasn't been canceled. He's pretty universally loved, except for the fact that, and I'll take umbrage with some people for this, he hasn't published a Song of Ice and Fire book in over 10 years now, despite the fact that the series, you know, came and went, despite the fact that we were supposed to have two more books. I mean, I don't want the guy to croak, but eventually he's going to. And because he's 72, no one is going to publish those books if he dies and they're not finished. So A Song of Ice and Fire may never be finished. Some people are very upset about that, about the length of time it takes him to write books. And are some of those people you and Lindsay? No, because he's an artist, okay? He gets to do whatever he wants. He doesn't owe me anything. <laughs> How do you feel about Lindsay? <laughs> I go both ways because it's not like he hasn't been writing and it's not even that he hasn't been writing in the Song of Ice and Fire universe. He came out with a book called Fire and Blood. That's great. It's Read really it. actually very good. And it has the history of the Targaryens. He came out with some short stories about Duncan and Aegon called Dunk the Duncan Egg Stories. And those take place like a hundred years before in Song of Ice and Fire. And so me and my husband actually have a very specific type of procrastinating. <laughs> so if you're procrastinating, but you're not doing something that's worthless, like let's say that you have to clean the house because company's coming over. Procrastinating. <laughs> and you decide to do the taxes. Doing the taxes is not bad work and it's not a waste of time, but you're not doing what you should be doing. So right. you're dunking egging. So... <laughs> That. That's great. And shout out to Tony. <laughs> Hi, Tony. <laughs> 
So do you want to tell us a little bit about A Song of Ice and Fire? Sure. Great. And so A Song of Ice and Fire, just to get literally me caught up, uh, (laughs) is that Game of Thrones colon Song of Ice and Fire? It's the name of the series, or could you explain that to me? It's the name of the book series. It's called A Song of Ice and Fire. Game of Thrones is the first book in the series. So it's actually Song of Ice and Fire colon Game of Game Thrones? Of, yeah, kind of. The first book is called Game of Thrones. Okay. And then it goes on A Clash of Kings, A Storm of Swords, A Feast for Crows, A Dance with Dragons. Those are the five books. So what it is, it's an epic fantasy series. Uh, it takes place in a fictional country of Westeros that's based on medieval England. And is this supposed to be, this might be a dumb question, but mm-hmm. is it supposed to be Planet Earth? No, it's... Oh, okay. It's a... It's a Fantasy world, it's not Earth, but it's it's medieval England for all intents and purposes. And are they humans? Yep, they're all humans in the show. Some people are witches and there's dragons and zombies, but it's it's all humans. There's no elves or goblins and things like in other fantasy series. And I do just want to point out really quickly that because it's not very specifically not set on Earth, it is an example of high fantasy versus low fantasy. I just found this out recently. High fantasy is where the fantasy is set in an alternative world. Low fantasy is where it is clearly set on Earth, even if it's like an alternative Earth. But high fantasy is non-Earth, and so it abides by its own internal set of rules. So like Harry Potter would be low fantasy, and Game of Thrones would be high fantasy. Got it. Okay. Okay. Thank you, English major. (laughs) You're welcome. This is a fantasy set in a medieval England-like society called Westeros. And then the king dies. There's a question about the legitimacy of his son, the heir. And it turns into a chaotic civil war with different factions fighting over the throne. And then the northern faction is fighting for independence. And so what kind of starts out as a peaceful country very quickly turns into a free-for-all. So there's some major characters in this story. It's the Targaryens, uh, Daenerys Targaryen with the long blonde hair. They were the ruling king and queens for 300 years. And 20 years before this book starts, they've been uh, ousted out in a rebellion. And a rebellion kind of united the rest of the country because it was everybody against the Targaryens. So they're living in exile across the sea. Sidebar... George Martin said he always identified a lot with Daenerys Targaryen as exiled royalty because in the 30s, his mother and father, they owned a huge shipping dock and they were very wealthy and the depression happened and they lost everything. Mm-hmm. So he'd walk by this dock every day. They were very poor and he'd walk by and he's like, that, that's, that's our dock, but had nothing to show for it. So he oh. said so he kind of identifies with Daenerys there. There's also the Starks for all intended purposes are the good guys, even though they're not always good. The family is Ned Stark and his wife and their family. And then the Lannisters, who are the bad guys, although they're not always bad and they can be very sympathetic at times. And they are very rich because they are from the gold mines. So that those are the yeah. main players in the Game of Thrones. Should I go through all the books? Just a very quick thing. Yeah, like one sentence each, maybe? Yeah, sure. All right, so book one is a Game of Thrones. It introduces the world, it introduces the characters, and it kicks off the civil war for Westeros. Uh, book two is a Clash of Kings. Rob Stark is uh, Ned's son. He's fighting from the north. Tyrion uh, and the Lannisters are fighting Robert Baratheon's brothers for control of King's Landing, which is the city. And then book three, it kind of pivots. And so both the Starks and the Lannisters take heavy losses. So book four, it's not a very good book. Not a lot happens. It's kind of showing the devastation to Westeros and the peasants. So there's a lot of poverty. There's some 
religious uprising and there's a lot of unintended consequences for being at war. And then book five is the last book that George Martin has written and it followed Daenerys across the sea. She's trying to rule. Jon Snow is fighting the ice zombies up north and Tyrion is trying to make his way to Daenerys. And then where we left off is Jon Snow is dead by the Night's Watch. And in the show, he comes back to life. But in the books, he's just lying there. And we don't know what happens to him. And that was many years ago. Right. When did the first book come out? When did the last book come out? A Game of Thrones came out in 1996. And the latest book, A Dance with Dragons, came out in 2011. Oh, okay. Yeah. So as the show was starting. Yeah. In fact, after the show had already premiered. It I see. Out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to old interviews, George Martin had every intention of finishing the series before the show series ended, but they caught up and passed him. And so they basically had to work from outline and notes and boy, is it show. So, yeah. <laughs> what I'm hoping is that that means the sixth and seventh books are incredible. Like, mm-hmm. mind-blowing literature <laughs> of a caliber never mm-hmm. before seen. So that's the idea that there will be two more books? Yes. Okay. Thanks for the, the synopsis. So uh, I want to go over, before we maybe do some comparisons between the show and the books, there are a lot of historical parallels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd love if you two would jump in to add to this, because I feel like you two are Game of Thrones scholars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I did Game of Thrones 101. <laughs> Game of Thrones light. Yeah. So, um... I would say the biggest parallel that Game of Thrones has to real history is the War of the Roses. This was a civil war in England that lasted from about 1455 to 1485, and it was fought between the Lancasters and the Yorks before the crown was won by the Tudors. Their parallels in the Game of Thrones roughly are the Lannisters, Lancaster, and the Starks, Yorks, called the War of Roses because of their symbols that they had. And this might have been made up by Shakespeare, actually, who assigned them. Or at least Shakespeare pointed out in his plays that he wrote that the Yorks had a symbol of the white roses and the Lancasters had the symbols of the red roses. Oh yeah, that's right. Can you tell me any more about the War of Roses, Lindsay, that I might be missing? Sure. So kind of like ousting the Targaryens, these three brothers ousted the king. And so it starts... In real life. In real life. And then there's King Edward and he has his two younger brothers. Throughout time, they start fighting each other for the throne, which is really reminiscent of the three Baratheon brothers. There's Robert Baratheon, and then Stannis Baratheon, and Renly Baratheon. And And were their real-life counterparts the Yorks or the Lancasters? Well, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but what is true is like the pendulum truly swung back and forth, and it could have gone either way at several times, but a weird stroke of luck or a betrayal or an alliance completely would shift the whole war. And so it was really back and forth. It ended with the throne, like eventually goes to Henry VII, who is Henry VIII's father. And he was a very unassuming, kind of distant heir to the throne, kind of lived a life in exile. No one thought that he was going to be the final winner take all, which is kind of how when Bran, spoilers, at the end of Game of Thrones takes the throne, he's an unassuming, but everybody can compromise and agree, and he brings peace at the end. So that's the parallel for that. Yeah, some of the characters, for instance, like King Joffrey, he's based on Edward of Lancaster, who was the son of King Henry the Sixth, and Margaret of Anjou is very similar to Cersei, and like that, Edward was only 13, and 
also sounds like he was also a homicidal maniac. So if you ever go into history, Margaret of Anjou, I love her. She's just very cutthroat in her ambition, knows no bounds, and the whole world can, you know, go to hell as long as her son gets to the throne and she's successful at the end. So one big thing that there is a definite historic parallel to is the very famous Red Wedding. Mm -hmm. So this is actually based on two events. And there is also some parallels to an ancient Japanese massacre. The first parallel to the Red Wedding, and I have a very brief Red Wedding synopsis. Everyone dies. Basically what was meant to be a peaceful celebration turns into a massacre. Surprise attack. So this is related to the Black Dinner of 1440, when the sixth Earl of Douglas, who was only 16, and his brother David, they went to go visit the King of Scotland, James II, who was only 10 years old. So basically a kid's table. And during this, the Chancellor of Scotland, through the Black Douglas clan, ordered the Earl of Douglas and his brother murdered after dinner. Well, that wasn't nice. No. Nope. And then there's also the Massacre of Glencoe. So in 1691, some Scottish soldiers pretended to need shelter at the estate of the McDonald's. And when the McDonald's were sleeping after giving them shelter, they murdered all of them. Well, that's not a very good house guest. Rude. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, let's see. Peter Dinklage's character, Tyrion, mm-hmm. is roughly based on Henry III, and fun fact, he played him in a 2004 production of Shakespeare's famous play. And the Dothraki are also based on the Mongols. Yep, okay. <laughs> that tracks. <laughs> they actually found uh, Richard III's skeleton not too long ago. It was under a parking lot. Mm-hmm. And then scholars didn't know if he really did have a crooked back, or if that was just, you know, the winners of history write history, and it turns out he really did. Oh on a little bit. So we talked about how I'm not a huge fan of Game of Thrones. I can appreciate it, but I want to talk to both of you because you love Game of Thrones. So tell me why you love Game of Thrones. Okay, go ahead. I love Game of Thrones. I just absolutely fell in love with the characters. I wasn't actually drawn to it because it was fantasy. I was kind of drawn to it more the historical side. And actually my dad is a huge Song of Ice and Fire fan and he was just so eager. (laughs) Shout out to Bill. (laughs) He was is so eager for this to come out and you know when someone overhypes something you're not really that interested and Mm -hmm. so I watched the first episode and I didn't mind it. I was like, okay, this may or may not be for me. And then I think it was the episode where Daenerys' brother Viserys, he threatens her unborn baby and then Cal Drogo takes him and he pours some like hot lead on his head and Viserys is gone. I'm like, oh, okay, so nobody is safe on this show, which it's kind of weird that it took me to that episode to get there, which is maybe three or four in when Jamie pushes Bran out the window in the first episode, but I didn't know the characters enough to get too invested yet. And mm-hmm. so I think from that moment on, I was hooked. I love all the characters. And when you like all the characters, whether they're the good guys or bad guys, there's real stakes there and you care what happens to them. What about you, Michaela? So I think at first blush, it's really hard for people to get into the show because the first episode has a ton of incest and child murder uh, right off the bat. So does Sex in the City, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think that I watched the first season, I'm pretty sure, before I read the books. But after the first season, I was like, well, I might as well read these. And, and you know me, I don't super love fantasy. I'm not a huge fan. I don't usually go out of my way to read it. What I like about, and it's really the books that hooked me, so what I really like about A Song of Ice and Fire is that they're written from multiple perspectives, which I think is really great because it's basically like watching a chess game where you can get all of the info from both sides of the chess game. And it's really cool watching those political intrigues play out against each other 
when you have all the information, but you're kind of watching from on high as everyone else scrambles with like half information. How does he frame it? Is it an omniscient narrator or does each chapter you are in first person or? So the chapters are written from viewpoint characters. There's no omniscient narrator. There's just individual characters giving their own account of what's happening. And sometimes that jumps around in time. Sometimes things move forward or backwards and you don't necessarily see the fallout from their actions or the consequences that their actions are going to have firsthand. Sometimes you get someone else's account of what happened to your favorite character. And it's it's just a really fascinating way to write a book. So it changes by chapter. Yes. Right. And then you get to the fourth book and you have a bunch of people you don't care about and it's whatever. So I'm very hard on the fourth book because it's bad. Yeah, you're not alone. I think most fans are, Yeah, you know, they were waiting for it and waiting for it. And, and it's a very strange uh, narrative structure he chose because instead of doing the whole story, he split it. So book four is only happening in Westeros. So you get Jamie and Cersei, but then Arya and Tyrion and Jon Snow, everyone's favorite characters, you don't get any point of view characters from them. They're not really in Westeros at that point. And it's just, I don't think it works. I agree. I think I think that one other reason that I like this more than I like most fantasy is for the fact that it's got that multiple viewpoints, which is not usually a thing in high fantasy, but it's also an example of grimdark fantasy. Grim, like G-R-I-M-M? No, just one M. Just actually grim. Just grimdark. Bleak. Yeah. Okay. Um, It's one word, grimdark, and I think that actually comes from, I want to say the world of Warcraft uh, is why this came up, but it's a sub-genre where the tone and the style and the setting is particularly dystopian, amoral, or violent. So I kind of just like how, uh, if you like Breaking Bad or like The Walking Dead, it's a very similar sort of feel. Hmm. So I'm thinking anti-heroes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Everyone has, I think, is like very well realized. And that's one of the best things about it is no one is good or evil. Everyone has shades of gray, including Ned Stark, one of my favorite characters. Everyone feels like a very fully realized human being. I'm resisting asking how many shades of gray there are. Fifty. Five. <laughs> <laughs> and a half. And yeah. Let's talk about how the books compare to the show. Okay. I heard that at a certain point in the show, it goes off the rails. But before we talk (laughs) about that, I'd love to hear what your favorite characters are and how they differ from the book and the show. Okay. Uh, One of my very, very favorite characters in the Game of Thrones show is Sansa Stark. And I was surprised because in the beginning, she is milquetoast. She is the most boring human being that's ever existed. And by the end of the series, she kicks so much butt and is such a queen. Her transformation is amazing to me. I also love Ned Stark at the beginning, you know, poor dead Ned, but he's such an honorable guy. It's hard not to like him. Plus he's played by Sean Bean. So it's doubly hard not to like him. And then of course, I love Cersei Lannister because she's a nutcase, but I love her to death because she is the most fascinating character in this entire thing. You never know what she's going to do next, and it's super fun to watch. Top three insane things she did. Top, I mean, there's a top one, (laughs) uh, which is my favorite scene in any of the show. I think it's the end of season six, where she blows up the Sept of Baylor with, like, all of your other favorite characters in it, including Marjorie Tyrell, who's another favorite of mine. Just blows everybody to smithereens. It's great. Rude. 
Yeah. But it's <laughs> wonderful because the cinematic brilliance of that is that all of this is happening without any narration whatsoever or any sort of dialogue. So it's this beautiful piano track. You just watch everybody like getting ready for this, what's supposed to be like the trial of the century. And it all goes wrong and things are blowing up with this beautiful piano score. And then her son jumps out a window and then there's silence. And it all begins with the tolling of these bells, which is kind of symbolic, you know, you toll the bells for people who are dead. And by the end of that, everyone's dead. Oh, yeah. Lindsay, I know that was one of your favorite scenes as well. Mm -hmm. Why do you like that scene? I think I like it because I really didn't see it coming. They're, they were building up this trial, several episodes. And so it was the trial, the trial, the trial. The trial never happens because secrecy blows up. It's the Vatican, basically. And lays oh. waste to all her enemies. And it's like, oh, okay, we're taking another pivot here. And then also, you know, Marjorie Tyrell is my favorite mm -hmm. character. So justice for Marjorie. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag justice for Marjorie. I know. <laughs> I feel like she gets it mm -hmm. by the end a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so other two things that are insane that she's done. Oh, anything kind of just flippant and kind of funny that's insane? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. I mean, she's flippant and funny all the time. She's very witty. She bites back at both of her brothers, including one of whom is her lover. Um, ooh, ooh, <laughs> pulling out my collar. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't come up with a better example. She's just all around weird. It's not like a, a massive betrayal, but I just like, it's the battle of the Bywater and her city is under siege. If she they lose this battle, she's done for, she's dead. And Sansa's going around like praying with the other women and seriously just sitting there getting drunk and like, yeah, if they come <laughs> oh, in, yeah. they're gonna kill us all and slowly, so you better hope they don't. And just <laughs> like... <laughs> just being a wine But mom. she's telling the truth. <laughs> All right, what about you, Lindsay? Who's your favorite character? I love Marjorie Tyrell. Marjorie is from one of the lesser houses that Tyrells do the farming, and so they have a lot of money behind them. And so Marjorie tries to hook up with Baratheon. She, she marries Joffrey. Joffrey dies, and she marries Tommen. But why I love Marjorie is she's just so smart. And a lot of times in fiction, women are either smart or they're beautiful. And like Marjorie doesn't have to be one or the other. And she's ambitious, and she's cutthroat, and she's kind, and you can be all those things. You don't have to be one or the other. She wants the peasants to have a better life under her rule, but she will lie, steal, cheat, and kill to get there at the same time. Hmm. She knows how to market herself. She can be kind of like sexy and demure at the same time. She knows how to do branding. She knows how to brand <laughs> herself. And so there was a prophecy that Cersei would be, you know, replaced by a younger, more popular, prettier queen. You don't know if it's Marjorie or Daenerys. And I thought maybe Marjorie winning till the very end would kind of subvert expectations because Daenerys would be the easy choice. But mm -hmm. she didn't see that bomb coming. So Cersei <laughs> got her in the end. Would you call Marjorie a hashtag girl boss? I would. Would she have a mug from TJ Maxx that said that? She would. <laughs> I'm so upset by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she would. I also love um, Brian. So Brian is a knight. So in the Game of Thrones world, honor honor is gonna get you killed if you hold too far to your principles. It's a very brutal world. But Brian, she has the muscle and the skill with a sword to back it up to kind of hang tight to her morals. And so she has like the heart of gold, but she's a very fierce fighter. And she's one of the, tr you know, few truly people that holds to her principles, I think, for the whole show. And then everyone loves Tyrion. He's the easiest oh, yeah. choice, probably. 
George Martin's best creation. He's smart. And he is played by Peter Dinklage. He is played by Peter Dinklage. That's a big change from the book and the show is that Peter Dinklage is a handsome man and Tyrion, Dorp or not, is in the book very ugly. And then in the battle, he gets basically his face chopped in half and he survives it. And in the show, Peter Dinklage gives like a little scar Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he's a handsome actor and and charismatic as and, well. And charismatic. He's a as movie well. star, exactly. So the Tyrion characters don't really match, but I I do love both versions of them. Me too. What about Cersei book versus show? I think the hard thing is that the show moves so far beyond the books that I don't really know how I feel about her in the books yet. I I think she's getting to be cool, but she's not like quite the the cool person that she's going to be by the end of the series or almost the end of the Mm -hmm. series so i actually don't think we have enough information to me to make a decision about her book versus Mm -hmm. show what character is the most different between the book and the show i mean i still think Tyrion. he's i mean physically different but also i just think that the circumstances he gets put into in the show is so far beyond again what the books do that i I don't really know how he's going to turn out in the book either Mm -hmm. he is very different And then there's a lot of characters in the show that are like amalgams of different people in the Mm -hmm. books because, you know, it's a lot harder to have the budget to hire a hundred different actors and have the screen time to have, you know, all of the people who are included in the books. So there are some people who, who either drop out of the show or they're playing multiple characters in the show or they're playing you know, amalgams of people that I think are changed a lot. For one, like, Catelyn Stark gets murdered at the Red Wedding is, in the book, theoretically, we don't know yet, but probably Lady Stoneheart. In the show, they just ax that plot mm-hmm. line. It's not even there. So she'll probably be very different if the books ever get finished. I love what you guys were saying about George R. R. Martin really identifying with Daenerys. Can you talk about how women are perceived or written in the book versus how they're depicted in the show? I know that there's some differences there and they're not super cool. Yeah, um, that was really bothered me. And I think I'm not alone. I think it bothered a lot of women because in uh, Song of Ice and Fire, George Martin writes a world where women are not respected, but they're full, complete human beings. They're doing their best in a world where they have a lot of limitations. And the same is true in the movie, but I think the showrunners just really didn't get it. And they use sexual assault a lot. Try to show like character growth or character growth of the men around them. And I think they just didn't get it. It keeps happening again and again and again. And so, first of all, like Daenerys, and you can, in the Song of Ice and Fire, she doesn't really want to marry Drogo, but he seduces her and on their wedding night, you're in her head. So, you know, she's not lying. You know, she's into it. And then in the, in the show, it's really disturbing. She's crying. She's not having a good time. She doesn't want to do that, which makes that their successful marriage in the show a little confusing because like, that's how they started. I don't see anybody pivoting that much. Like it taints it a little bit. It does. And then, and, um, let's see, Ygritte is Jon Snow's girlfriend. She doesn't get assaulted, but in in the book, she's a part of the wildlings or like the people beyond the wall. They're kind of like a tribal people. Right. So Ygritte, she is completely respected by the other men in her tribe. Uh, she hunts along with them. She's one of the team. She's respected. In the show, they're always just disrespecting her and gendered slurs, and I really don't like that change. And then Sansa is just really heartbreaking. She is not assaulted. Um, it, her friend from Winterfell is. They use her as a doppelganger and trick one of the bad guys, Ramsay Snow, uh, marries her. In the show, it's like she is assaulted, and Theon has to watch, who like was raised with her for 
different, like, it was his sister. And this didn't happen in the book. This did not no. happen in the book at well, all. Well, it happened to someone else in the book. It happened to someone else, which is not good for the other character, but it's our beloved Sansa. That was a really unfortunate change. It's a hard episode to watch. Yeah. I usually skip through. Mm-hmm. And then Cersei has a scene with Jamie. He assaults her. Who is her brother. She's who is her brother, her but... Her brother lover. Um, and, you know, <laughs> brother or not, it's consensual like in the books. It's inappropriate timing, but it's consensual. Whereas in the show, it's, I feel really strange. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think just the showrunners could have taken some notes or it just was not cool. The problem is that they live in a time when brutalization of women, I mean, would have been a thing. It just... I don't know. It's so in your face and it's so all the time. I don't know that it serves anyone to be on screen. That's my real problem with it. I feel like this was way popular in the 2010s and shows are starting to move away from that, that you don't need to have a sexual assault or a birth to have a woman character grow or... God, change in the, the 90s way. where every woman had a birth scene. Every and- time, every woman had to scream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like morph into the cry of the baby. I hate that scene. Every time it comes up in anything, I just cringe. Yes, I'm glad that's not a thing anymore. And I'm glad this is starting to not be a thing as well. Is there any other differences how they depict women in the books? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard because you sometimes get their viewpoint and you sometimes don't. You don't get anybody's like internal thoughts. There's no like freeze frame shots where, you know, they're in the middle of doing something wacky. It's like, you're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> No, that also stopped in the 90s, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or the early thousands, maybe, with, yeah. like, Malcolm in the middle. <laughs> um, let's talk about more about how the show was created. Oh, yeah, I'm really excited about this one. You ready? David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, they're the executive producers of the show, went to George R.R. R. Martin and said, we really want to do this show based on your books. And he had already turned down several other people who were interested in doing this. So he asked them the question, who is Jon Snow's mother? And because they were able to satisfactorily answer that question, which R plus L equals J, folks, they got to do the show. And you're looking at me like, that's just the most insane thing I've ever said. What does that mean? R plus L equals J is a theory that I was very into uh, when I read the books before we found out on the show for sure. It was like a nerd theory going around the internetosphere that Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark who is Ned Stark's little sister, had Jon Snow. And that's significant because Rhaegar was married to another person. Uh, Lyanna was his girlfriend. They had a baby together, an illegitimate baby, Jon Snow, who Ned Stark takes in in the show. And it's important because all of Rhaegar's other children are dead, so their dynastic claim to the throne is theoretically dead. But Jon Snow might have a claim to the throne if people find out his real parentage. I'm going to be like, well, actually... Go for it. You go for it. (laughs) He is a legitimate heir because at this point... Oh, yes. Although they were messing around before, the mountain... um, Lyanna and Rhaegar Stark. The mountain killed Rhaegar's first wife. So at this point, this was late in the war. This was the end days of the war. They got married quickly. So Jon Snow was a legitimate heir at this point. Is this... You find out in the show. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was going to say, is this book lore or is this from the we show? We haven't gotten that far in the we book We don't know yet, in the book. So, yeah. George R.R. R. Martin has always said that the show is going to end differently than the books are going to end. Or they might end similarly, but like the way people get there will be different. It's kind of nebulous. Nobody really knows. But he has not confirmed 
this theory. You'll confirm nor deny. <laughs> yeah. So it still is, for the, the book lovers out there, it's still like a working theory <laughs> that nobody knows yet. Yeah. It's interesting, too, the way they wrote the episodes. David Benioff and D.B. Weiss wrote a couple of them. Martin uh, consulted on a couple of them. But a lot of times what they would do is assign individual characters to, like, specific writers and then the writers would figure out the character arc for that season for their one particular character. And then everyone would come together and figure out how to like slice those into the episodes and how to like make all of those line up, hmm. which is kind of an interesting way to write a show. It won 59 Emmys, which is an insane number of Emmys, you guys. It's the most by any drama series ever, including outstanding drama series for the last four seasons. Wow. Yeah. Most Emmys ever? No, just by a drama series. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. There's eight seasons. They're so good that when I was on my honeymoon, I made sure we were going to be in a hotel where we could watch the season finale of whichever season was on that year. I forget. I think it was four or five. I made sure we were going to a hotel where mm-hmm. we had the internet and we had the HDMI cable and we could watch that uh, <laughs> thing on my honeymoon. Where were you? We were in Washington, D.C. I have never seen something like this in my lifetime where at this point, this show was not just like the most popular in America. It was the most popular show literally like in the world. And then people were just so dissatisfied with the ending that it just kind of, they just dropped it. There's not a whole lot of people way into it anymore. You know, and I had to get over it myself, uh, the ending, because the whole thing is you're building up to the ending, building up to the ending. And so when they didn't stick the landing, a lot of people were like, oh. (laughs) I disagree. I think they did stick the landing. Really? Yeah. Why? Well, let's get into this. (laughs) Let's talk about... Let's talk about the ending. Okay. Okay. I mean, I know I'm one of the very, very few people out there. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to all of the rest of you who thinks that the ending was good. Um, I know most of you hate it because Bran Stark is, I mean, Mr. Nobody from Nowheresville outside, comes in, swoops up the Mm -hmm. crown. Peter Dinklage calls him Bran the Broken, and I think it was Tony, my husband, he's like, Bran the Boring. (laughs) I can see so many people say that. Um... I also, I, I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think he's the most exciting character, mm-hmm. but I think that all of the other characters' ambition pushes them so far over the edge that they're neither worthy nor alive to claim the throne. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's a great fitting ending that someone just comes from nowhere and is like, yeah, I'll take that. Thank you. Because everyone else, like, brings about their own comeuppance, basically. I think it's brilliant. Great. Disagree? I disagree. Okay. I'm going to start with my theory. So when people tell stories, this is like a really anthropological point of view. People think that they started telling stories, like not just like around the campfire, but someone's like going hunting. And if you see like a broken branch or a footstep, then you lead on and lead on. And then at the end, you get your, your prey and you can bring your food back to your family. And then they think that's what kind of started the narrative with human beings, like way back in the cave people. And there's no way to test this theory. But like at the end, if you're following a story, and at the end there's no food, you know, there's nothing to bring home to your family. It's very unsettling. People don't like that. And I think the very ending was one twist too many because with Daenerys, she overcame so many adversaries and proved herself. And even though she burned down King's Landing at the end, she had earned that throne for for good or worse. And then the same with Jon Snow finding out his lineage and, and finding out what a good leader he was and finding out that he was real royal blood. And then, so t- at the very end, to pivot and to not give the throne to either of them, I thought it was going to be one or both. And to have like neither of them be on the throne at the end just really threw me for like, what did I just watch for <laughs> eight years? And the same for Jamie as like, he's building this 
arc, the whole eight years, and then he just kind of reverts back to form after kind of redeeming himself for pushing Bran out the window for eight years. He's slowly getting in our good graces, and he kind of throws it all away to go back to Cersei at the end. And I think there's a couple other people's arcs. I was like, well, that... Okay, <laughs> that didn't pan out, but all I right. I disagree with you so hard. Okay, so let's hear it. Let's dig in. What I like about the ending is it mimics real life, right? So this mm-hmm. whole series is supposed to be like a historical fiction. Right. And in actual history, like how many times has it actually happened that someone who like deserved to have the mm-hmm. throne or whatever it is they wanted, like got to have that thing at the end? Mm-hmm. I, I just don't think that's realistic. I think it's much more realistic that somebody who just like patiently perseveres and doesn't go out of his way to pursue things, but is a very wise leader, like ends up on the throne. I I think that happens all the time and we don't talk about it because yeah, it's kind of just a, that's normal life. Not really a great fantasy story. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I think the... The one with the firepower and the military behind her would have won at the end. but Well, she did, except she was crazy. Someone stabs <laughs> her, which, I mean, death to tyrants. That's <laughs> And I think that's what bothered me, is that she went crazy <laughs> at all. I okay. love Daenerys. I didn't want her to go crazy and burn down the, the city at the end, so that was upsetting. Well, I don't think anybody does. And <laughs> Especially <laughs> the people who live there. I know. But I don't, I don't think the show earned it. I don't think there was enough foreshadowing that she had that in her to just... Oh, I so hard disagree with okay. you. Okay. So hard. She does all sorts of crazy stuff the entire time. She is not only like when she gets power, but like even before she mm-hmm. has power, she is constantly doing crazy stuff that undermines her own ambitions. Case in point, like she sends Jorah away. That's not a very smart military move on mm-hmm. her part. Uh, He comes back later. She burns a whole bunch of her own people. Also not a super great leadership move. Tries to take them from a place where they're comfortable and happy to a place where they're going to be just massacred. Also not great. Sells her dragon. Like she's constantly going down this path of madness for literally eight whole seasons. So everyone who's like, that came out of nowhere at the end of season eight. Mm -hmm. I say to you, baloney. It came out of season one, episode one. I think Daenerys, she's not afraid to go big or go home. Mm-hmm. She never really hurts uh, quote unquote like innocent people as much before. Like she was always about like freeing the slaves. Yeah, I just I just didn't see it as. Huh. And <laughs> I'm not not to. I think her Amelia Clark's acting was fantastic at the end, mm-hmm. and you can see a lot of things moving on her face. I wish she had just had like even one or two scenes of some type of foreshadowing hmm. before she pulled the trigger and burned down King's Landing. <laughs> Okay. Agree to this. Alright. Yeah. Fair enough. Alright. I I am Switzerland. <laughs> Roxanne doesn't have a dog in this fight. Or a dragon. <laughs> but you should. Not for me. Alright. Okay. Before we wrap up, I feel like this is definitely like such a fans fan show. Mm-hmm. Uh any fun facts you guys came across while you were doing I research? Do. So uh, something I love about George Martin is that he says in an interview, someone asked him, what character are you most like, George Martin? And he says, I really wish I could say I was the most brave like Jon Snow or noble like Ned Stark or take charge like Daenerys. He's like, the truth is, he's like, I'm Sam. I, <laughs> I like my books. I like my creature comforts. I'm kind of a quieter guy. I am definitely the Sam. It's not the nice. best answer, but he ha- he's like, if I'm honest with myself, I am the Sam of the series. I believe that. He's an indoor kid. <laughs> and lucky for us, he is. He, he stabs some... a white walker. Yeah, he so has his moments of greatness, yeah. you know. Yeah. 
if he's facing, you know, if he's up against the wall, <laughs> he'll protect himself. <laughs> so some people think maybe Song of Ice and Fire has kind of gotten away from George and he's having trouble wrapping it up. And George says that there's two types of writers. There's architects and gardeners, and architects plot out everything before they even start writing. They know everything that's going to happen, and then they just kind of fill in the blanks. So you're J.K. Rowling. And get there. Right. They have the story plotted out beginning to end. He says he's a gardener. He throws all the seeds in the ground. They start growing. <laughs> they start taking shape, and then he kind of designs the garden and sees which ways the story is going to go. Where I think that makes maybe a more interesting story, but mm -hmm. he's having, obviously, some issues wrapping... Stuff up. He wants us to just keep world building instead of finishing the narrative. And then for your uh, Lord of the Ring fans out there, so the end of the show we have the night zombies and then fighting Cersei at the end. And he said he wanted to structure it after Lord of the Rings, where it's not in the movies, but in Lord of the Rings, the book, they have their main battle with Sauron, and then they go back, and it's called the Scourging of the Shire. They had their smaller battle, and so for him, the the big battle is the Battle of the Night. The Night King, that's kind of the battle for all of humanity in Westeros. And then they go back, they, they go on, and they beat Cersei, and then that's a, the smaller battle. Um, I'm not sure how much, how well it worked, but that's his structure idea anyway. It worked well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's my fun facts. Okay. Jerome Flynn, who plays Braun of the Blackwater, mm -hmm. in the 1990s, you guys, this guy was part of a singing duo called uh, Robson and Jerome. So do yourselves a favor and YouTube What Becomes of the Brokenhearted by Robson and Jerome. You will not be disappointed. <laughs> I didn't know Braun can sing. All right. Uh, <laughs> maybe. maybe. Um, you should definitely look it up. It's delightful. There are several songs on Taylor Swift because we can't go more than like five episodes for some reason without mentioning <laughs> Taylor Swift. I really don't know why. We're not even big fans. We're not. We're not. <laughs> But uh, several of the songs on her album Reputation were inspired by Game of Thrones. Really? So yeah. Right? T-Swift got got. Anyway. <laughs> oh my god. I love how Roxanne <clears throat> thinks like we're the weird ones for liking know, Game right? of Thrones. It was like the most popular show in the history of shows. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, I do not think you're weird. I know I am, again, the interloper here. I just don't. I don't care enough. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I, to me, I, I look at you two beautiful women and I say, well, it's nice that they have this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, here's my last two fun facts real okay. quick. This show was so popular that in 2018, 560 girls were named Khaleesi. Oh, Which no. is not even a name in the show. It's a title. It means queen. So 560 of you out there, just from 2018 alone, I'm sure there are more from other years. Um, I'm sorry. Over 2,500 girls named Arya that year. Arya is the big winner <laughs> of the entire show. Way to go, uh, girl power. And my last one is that the show was so popular that between 2017 and 2020, Duolingo, which is like a language learning course, offered courses in High Valyrian, which is a made-up language in mm -hmm. this realm, had 1.2 million signups. So, all you kids out there learning High Valyrian, <laughs> way to go. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's their anti-drug. Hopefully. Yeah. It's just like in the 90s when everyone learned Klingon, right? Did you learn Klingon? No. <laughs> oh, okay, good. I mean, good. I'm sure somebody did. It wasn't popular with the kids. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is not my realm of nerdery, okay? We're out of touch. Well, thank you for letting me nerd out. Any day yeah. I can nerd out and talk about Game of Thrones, it's a good day. So thank you. I agree. But I also want to thank Lindsay because being my older sister, a lot of my taste 
in movies and pop culture has been from Lindsay. So oh, while thank I, you, Rocky. <laughs> while I am not a Game of Thrones fan, the reason that I'm super into like period costume dramas and Jane Austen. Thank you to Lindsay. Oh, you're welcome. Kudos to you. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. (laughs) Before we say goodbye, we would highly recommend that you check out these books and the show from the Community Library Network. We can also order you anything. And Lindsay, I was wondering if you could um, give us some recommendations. If you like Game of Thrones, what kind of things could you get from the library? Well, if you're a George Martin completionist, kind of like I am. He has the Fire and Blood, and that's the history of the Targaryens. He has A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms. That's a a prequel. Uh, There's a World of Ice and Fire. If you like art, I would really recommend that. He was very picky about the artists he picked. It's just very well done art. He's written a book called Fever Dream that has nothing to do with Westeros. It's like Mark Twain if there was vampires on a steamship. I love historical fiction and he captured like a world that is gone where the Mississippi River was like a highway just full of these boats. You had me at Mark Twain, you lost me at vampire. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, Windhaven, which I actually think is the closest to his Song of Ice and Fire, kind of a science fiction story. Other books, I would recommend Outlander series, where it's a historical fiction with some minor fantasy elements in it. Um, If you like The War of the Roses and wanted to read more, there's some books by Philippa Gregory that... And to add to that, Alison Weir. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So she really has five books from five pivotal members of women in the, the War of the Roses. There's A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah Moss. It's a new adult novel. So the best I can explain is like Twilight means Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like a... No, thank you. Yep. Yeah, it's not for you, Roxanne. <laughs> not for me. I'm assured it's very good by several of our staff members here. I haven't gotten around to it yet, but... The Dark Tower series by Stephen King. And then The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Cool. So those can all be found at... The Community Library Network. Thanks, Lindsay. I would also recommend the series of graphic novel adaptations that have been made of Game of Thrones. Fabulous. Oh, wow. Do we have those here? You can borrow them through (laughs) the libraries in the area. Excellent. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. For being a guest on the show. This has been The Book Isn't Necessarily Better. I'm Roxanne. I'm Michaela. I'm Lindsay. And we'll chat next time. No, no, those are the caldro. That's the what? No. Okay. Oh, good. I could. I could keep going. I want to get some popcorn. All right. Where were we? No idea.